listening to the Engage and Equip podcast, where we engage with culture and equip the local church in faith and ministry. I'm Ashlyn Phelps, the communications coordinator at High Point Church. We're in a series called It's Not Just Politics, where we talk about how Christians and the church should lovingly engage with others regarding politics and participate in the institution of government. Our goal is not to talk about what to do, who to vote for, etc., but rather how to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of Christ in love and prudence. The problem is not just politics, it is us. In this episode, our lead pastor, Nick Gibson, is interviewing Sheree Farha and Benjamin Heath, who are going to share their experiences working in government as Christians. Also, we apologize for the delay in getting this week's episode out. We had some technical difficulties. If you have any questions, email us at podcast at highpointchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, this is Nick Gibson with the Engage and Quit podcast from High Point Church. This series we're doing is called not uh, is called It's Not Just Politics. Today's episode, we have uh, Sherry Farha and Benjamin Heath. Um, both have worked in government in their careers and in advocacy and other different sorts of things. Both have pretty different backgrounds. And um, we just want to get a couple people who have been on the inside of government a little bit to give us some feedback, both of them um, being believers. So guys, uh, why don't you like each of you give us like a two minute or like what area of government did you work in when kind of like, how, how did you, how did you have experiences that would lead you to know some stuff we'll talk about? Sherry, ladies first. Chivalry is not good. Okay. Thanks. Good to know. Um, yeah. So I worked in, uh, I worked on Capitol Hill in Washington, DC, and this was during the mid eighties to early nineties. So, um, quite a while ago, I worked for a member of Congress, um, who was from my congressional district in my home, um, town and state, which was Wichita, Kansas. Um, I worked as a press secretary for him as well as a legislative assistant, um, after I left his office, I worked for a large trade slash membership association in DC called Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. So helped with advocacy work on Capitol Hill for, for uh, them. So they were people that owned um, airplanes and were private pilots or are private pilots. So I'd say that's my main like um, actual government work. So would that be what people sometimes refer to as lobbying? Um, the, the association that I worked for definitely had a lobbying arm. So they mm-hmm. represented the interests of uh, people that owned aircraft and uh, were private pilots. So, yep. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So I was on both sides. I got lobbied when I worked on the congressman's staff and then probably did a little bit more of the lobbying, albeit indirectly, because I did media and PR for the uh, Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. Okay, great. Thanks, Jerry. Ben, how about you? So currently, I am a second-year law student um, here in Virginia. Um, but before deciding to go back to law school, I spent about 10 years um, working in uh, the campaign and electoral uh, candidacy advocacy profession. Um, right out of college, I worked for a political nonprofit at the University of Virginia. I did some... Um, very, you know, to answer your question, Nick, I did actually lobby. I worked for a, a lobbying group that worked out of D.C. And then uh, in 2012, I was hired by the Republican Party of Wisconsin um, to work for Governor Walker's recall, um, his his defense of the recall election. And for the past seven years, from 2012 to 2019, I worked for the Republican Party and most recently as their director of operations for the, uh, the 2018 and 2016 elections. Um, so I uh, almost kind of the opposite side of the political coin as Sherry. Did I say I was a Democrat? Oh, no, I meant that you were actually working in government. <laughs> and I was work I was working on the on the campaign side of things. Oh, just just didn't know. Just to <laughs> so okay, so how did you guys her. like, how did you guys like even start with that? Like, how did you was it just kind of serendipitous? Like you just had an opportunity? Or did you like, you know, through college or through some kind of experience, like want to get involved in political and governmental work? How, I mean, how did you get into this? I actually, um, I have a political science undergraduate degree. I actually knew that I wanted to go into campaigning. Um, and I knew that I wanted to kind of start out on the grassroots community organizing based level. Um, 
part of it, I mean, if I'm being honest with myself, and I know this is going to sound cliche, but I loved the show The West Wing. You know, my parents were politically active. Um, I remember watching C-SPAN with my dad, you know, especially times when C-SPAN showed the British Parliament. That was always kind of a an interesting those are so fun the, yeah is it the one where like the prime minister American like politics. sits there and they like somebody said something snippy and then this prime yep. minister gets up and talks for like 14 seconds and answers <laughs> the question and sits back down again i always thought that exactly. was amazing so so i mean my earliest political um you know i'm 32 and i remember going to a dull a dull camp rally in that would have been 96 yeah, that was that was back in the day. You know, and and you know, having politically active parents um, kind of definitely helped. But I also I never had a fear of public speaking, and I didn't really like math. So when it came time to um, think about what my college um, degree was going to be and what my major was going to be, political science always made the most sense to me. Um, and and then as through those four years of undergrad, I volunteered. I was in the College of Republicans. Um, my senior year, I managed a city council race in Newport News, Virginia. Um, and it, it just kind of solidified my my love of politics. And it, it made sense to me. And for a degree that's very general at times, um, I wanted to do something very specific with it. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, I was able to find a job pretty quickly out of college. Um, Are you in law school, hopefully, to continue? You know, I'm. I'm or are open you going to like get out and be a lawyer? Yeah, the big question that I have internally is how do I merge my past work experience and my passion for politics with the idea that I'm going to have a JD soon? Um, and I'm slowly working through that out now. My other my other pull um, is I have this general question in my head as a believer: What does God want me to do with my JD? And what kind of lawyer does he want me to be? And at times, there's definitely a, a conflict in what I think those goals look like. But very specifically, I'm taking a, an election, a class on election law right now. And that has um, underscored, one, that there is an entire area of law dedicated to elections, which I, had, I, I didn't know. I mean, you, you hear- Which of, is very hot right now. Yeah, you hear of parties and campaigns having, you know, you hear of the president's lawyers and you hear of the party's lawyers and stuff. And of course, there's lawyers in politics, but you don't actually hear about the law that is elections, the law that is campaigning and the laws governing those two things. And so that's been mind opening just personally in terms of what my future career could look like. Cool. Great. Sherry, how about you? How did you get into that? Yeah, so it's funny. It's it's somewhat similar. Um, When I was young, um, I remember watching the Democratic National Conventions on TV with my dad and um, saying, how do I get to go to one of those? And he told me, well, you first have to be elected as a delegate in your, you know, in your city, in your area, whatever your precinct, be a precinct committee woman. So when I turned 18, I couldn't wait to vote. Um, And so I voted when I was 18 and I was also on the ballot that same year to be a precinct committee woman, um, got elected to that and just sort of caught the bug from there on end. Um, I, in college, I got what was called a, a Linda B. Johnson internship, um, to go to DC for a summer and work on Capitol Hill and basically got Potomac fever at that point and knew that as soon as I graduated from college that I was going back to DC. So, um, took a lot of political science classes in undergrad, ultimately got a, a journalism degree, um, and then a master's degree in public administration in DC. So, um, just kind of not a dissimilar way. I probably, the only difference is I probably watched West Wing live and you're probably watching it on Netflix because <laughs> yeah. you're so much younger than me. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, yeah. Similar trajectory. It sounds like. Okay. So, so like what share, why don't you answer this one first? Um, so what was like your overall experience? Like you you know, was it like something you found very rewarding? Like it was difficult at times. D- did you come away cynical? Did you come away inspired? Like what, what how would you just generally care? your overall experience working in government? 
Yeah. So, you know what? It was a totally heady experience for a 21 year old, um, you know, to leave Wichita, Kansas and move to Washington, D.C. and live in a row house with a bunch of people that I didn't know and just kind of be, you know, in that exciting atmosphere. So a lot of the time it was more like, I can't believe I'm here kind of thing. Um, and then it became, I can't believe a member of Congress is listening to me and I'm only like 23 years old. Um, so it was super exciting. I mean, it was just really almost nothing like it. DC is a unique city. The only, there's no other city like DC where you just feel, you know, the, the, the world kind of happening around you and walking around Capitol Hill and eating lunch there and going to bars or whatever, you know, in that area was just, really, really exciting. But that was a very young, formative part of my life and early career. Do you feel like in that experience or as your life has gone on after that, that your view of government has become kind of more lofty or more cynical or like both in different ways? Uh, That's a a good question. Um, Unfortunately, more cynical, (laughs) Um, especially of late. I see having had the benefit of being there so many years ago when things were so different, um, there was just so much more people got along so much better. There wasn't this huge divide between whatever political parties you had great debates about things and civil conversations and stuff. And I mean, of late, I have just felt more cynical about it. I've kind of felt like things just aren't getting done. And I think that people are just digging their heels in too deeply. And I just, I'm just not seeing that spirit of cooperation happening that did happen when I was there. But this is a snapshot in time. I, I'm not giving up on government. Um, I still feel like it's there to serve the people. I still feel like it's valuable and, and the Constitution is valid and all of that. But lately, I'm just feeling kind of cynical slash sad about it. It's a, it's a way different time than I knew. Do you feel like you feel that partisanly or do you feel like your feelings are more just kind of like environmentally that like it just everything feels icky the way everybody's behaving or do you did you feel like that just because like Trump was president? No, I just icky overall. I, I just I don't recognize politics as I knew them when I first went into it. It's a whole different feel. There's just the whole spirit of embracing the different opinions and having some really, really good discussions like I could probably have with Ben and be like, that's cool. You're smart and you, you've got your opinion and that's all good. I've just felt lately. It's just the whole atmosphere has changed and it's not really setting a great example. I don't think for people who want to maybe go into it later as a career. And I'm sad about that. Yeah. I feel like the spirit of negotiation is at a low ebb. And the spirit of winner take all fighting is at a higher ebb. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I don't know what Ben thinks, but I feel like that. Well, we're about to find out gladly. Ben, <laughs> so what about you? How did, like, what was you, what, what was your kind of your overall impression working within the political zone? And then like, how did that affect you as you went away from it and like have lived kind of beyond it? Like, has it made you more lofty in your view of government, more cynical or both in different ways? Um, overall, I think so. When, when you when you work in politics, you definitely have to, at least in my experience, you have to recognize that there's an aspect to it where it's just your job. Um, I'm sure Sherry experienced this where, you know, I'd go home for Christmas breaks and Thanksgiving and politics was all my family wanted to talk about. And I just wanted to watch like Duck Dynasty and HGTV on my on my time off away from the campaigns. Um you know, as, as much as I love sitting down and watching the news with my dad, you know, going back to those times when we were watching C-SPAN, sometimes the news was the last thing I wanted to watch because it was all I was doing in my workday. And so I think that what I, what I personally benefited from was recognizing that this is a job that I do and it's not who I am because especially in Wisconsin during the recalls and especially over the past 10, 15 years, Politics has gotten pretty divisive, and 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 I think it goes to you know that that spirit of negotiation you just mentioned. It's hard to do that on social media. 
it's it's hard to negotiate in 30 second sound bites or 140 characters on Twitter. And, you know, whereas we used to have a political environment that was dedicated to, you know, sitting down over a beer or, or, or a coffee or a, a meal and having conversations. Now it's about who can get the one up in the press release or, or who can get that sound bite. Um, now that being said, I had a very positive experience, um, in, in working politics. I actually found on both sides of the aisle, those of us that worked kind of on the campaign side of things and worked in the party infrastructure. Um, and this is true for my Republican and Democrat friends. A lot of us were far more moderate politically speaking um, and kind of ideologically speaking than some of the people we sometimes worked for. So that was always a conflict too. Is, you mean the, the official elected officials themselves? No. The legislators themselves? That me and my colleagues working for X candidate would on average be a little bit more moderate. And, and that's not true for than everyone. Than the candidate. Than the candidate themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And, and because it's a business and I, I can imagine the same can be said for Washington DC in that you have a ton of long term staff members who, who it's their career. And so at some point in kind of a two party system, you pick which party aligns the, the most with your personal beliefs and then sometimes you have the luxury to pick who you then work for within that party. Um, but I had, you know, wonderful bosses and wonderful coworkers and people who, you know, not to mention the thousands of, of party activists that we worked with. I mean, I can, I can probably list on one hand people who I felt were in it just for money or in it just for power, or in it just because they felt that this was some end game for something else. You know, the vast majority of people that work in DC and the vast majority of people that work across the country in this field are doing it because they believe that this is going to positively impact their community and it's going to positively yeah, impact remember, their kids' when, lives. I remember when Ben Sass got elected to the uh, Senate and he was there a little while and people asked him about his ex- what surprised him. He said, you know, what surprised me was People in America tend to think that those in Washington are super smart and super wicked. And he's like, my impression was the opposite, was that these were people of about average intelligence, high ambition, average intelligence, and not that bad. I'd be like, you know, they like, they're trying to figure something out. They're trying to do what they think is best. And they didn't, they might be venial or, or vain, but they weren't like, sinister in the sense that the conspiracy theories about them were likely correct. Yeah. For me, it, it it just, it just underscored that people are people and um, you have good people run for office and you have some really bad people run for office and you have good CEOs and bad CEOs and, and good trash collectors and bad trash collectors. And, you know, it just goes back to the fact that we all have our faults. You know, every single person on earth lies, cheats and steals, all the time, you know, and, and so it wasn't surprising for me and maybe, and maybe it's because I am a believer, but it wasn't surprising to me when I met someone that had different motives than me, but it didn't prevent us from having good conversations, but it also kind of reinvigorated my dedication to doing what I did when I met someone that was doing it for purely, you know, good reasons. And they, they, they honestly felt that they were the best person for the job. And you, you have to have a healthy ego to be in politics. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, it takes a strong ego to ask someone to vote for you and an even stronger one to ask someone to donate money, <laughs> to donate money to you. Yeah. And then add to that all the crap you have to face now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish running for president on my worst enemy because what you and your family I mean what you and your family have to go through the loss of job opportunities in the future I mean just what we put our elected officials through on a day-to-day basis I mean I, I in high school if you had asked me I would have said my biggest hope and hope and dream would have been to, ru- to run for office one day I don't know if that's true anymore I don't know if I would want to put my friends and family through that um, unless I really felt that I was the best person for the job. And, and maybe it's a little self-deprecating, but I can think of several people better than me that are better suited to run this country than, than I am. Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you guys about this. Sherry, let me ask you first on this. Um, ben said something about like uh, 
people wanting power or doing it for money. There's also um, a reality of partisanship, like people who are really ideologically driven. They think that their way is right and that like, man, it's got to win or we're all going to die. And um, if you, a lot of people at high point are under age 30. And so for a lot of them, like, you know, second half of Obama and president Trump is like, that's their experience. And both of those were pretty partisan polarized moments for the country. When Obama was in power, there's a lot of base Republicans who just hated his guts. And um, with Trump in power, obviously the same was true the opposite way. Trump was a little bit less classy about it um, in certain ways, but he was a New Yorker and president Obama was a Midwesterner, you know? And so they behaved differently, but they were really disliked and it was very, very bitter and partisan elections. What would you say to Christians as a Christian about partisanship, knowing something about the inside of how these things kind of flow and the dynamics they have? Yeah, I would say don't be concerned about labels. Don't be concerned about having to fit in to one political party or one particular title. You don't have to be a progressive. You don't have to be a conservative. You don't have to be a bleeding heart liberal. I would just say, first of all, stay away from from titles, from from classifications, and even necessarily a political party. Um, I have never woken up every morning and say, I'm a Democrat, and that's how my day is going to go. Um, I advise people to not necessarily get so wrapped up in you know the party system necessarily, but instead. Align yourself. I mean, whenever I start to stray away from things, I just try to, to, to think about it from a biblical perspective. I try to think about what did Jesus do? What did he want for people? How did he serve people? What was his instruction? And so I would say to those, those who've just seen all this bitterness and stuff, just find your moral compass. I mean, find your, your moral compass and align it with your Christian beliefs and Go from there. Um, don't rely on other people to formulate your opinion. Don't rely on certain news sources or whatever and just go with it because all your friends are going with it. Really stop and think about what it is that you value, what it is you your values are driven as by being a Christian, and then choose the candidate that's um, in place that is most closely aligned with it. You're never going to find anyone that you're going to completely agree with. There's never going to be a slate that you agree with every single issue on it. But I think you first have to like know your own moral compass, know your own what's right is wrong and wrong. Don't rely on a news source to tell you. Um, make your own decisions. Have your own thoughts. Yeah, I th- I think that so. There's a couple reasons why partisan partisanship seems to be ebbing high right now in a, in a kind of like sort of vicious or very like very partisan way. I think one of it is what Ben mentioned already with social media. Yeah. There's something about social media that tends to lead to that. I think there is like the, there is the grouping social media where you can just talk to people who agree with you and you can just get your stuff in your feed that agree with you. There's also the issue of just like speaking in 240 characters and that that doesn't lead to good discussion. I, th- I think there's also the rise of the mentality of activism that like, um, activism in order to change the world and to bring about justice requires activity. In order for that to work, you have to get wins. And in order to get those wins, you have to have solidarity with a coalition of people who can get the win, right? Power-wise. And in order to have that solidarity, you have to have a profound sense of loyalty. In order to get the group with the solidarity, to get the power, to get the win, to get the activity, to amend the injustice, right? And so I think a lot of younger people feel like in order to be a moral political actor, you have to have loyalty to a group in which the solidarity of that group can have the power to affect the change. So therefore, you have to be a highly partisan Democrat or a highly, and you've only got two choices for the group that could garner the power because we have a two-party system. So either you have to be a highly partisan Republican or a highly partisan Democrat. Like, is there a way to deconstruct that? Or is it, or like, well, how would you answer that, Ben? Is that the sort of thing you've got an answer for? You're yeah, in law school. I, you have to answer everything, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. I think the, the, 
like Sherry said, my biggest piece of advice is surround yourself with people that you disagree with. (laughs) Um, Iron tends to sharpen iron. And some of my most profound political beliefs have been fleshed out through conversations with people who disagree with me. And, and I hope this same can be, I, I hope they can stay the same. Um, I think you're right. In today's day and age, it's not just enough to be a card holding member of either party. You're almost expected to be a card holding donor, militant protester on one side of the aisle. And, you know, each, each organization has its own purity tests and, you know, my level of republicanism or conservatism is never going to be good enough for your level of conservatism or vice versa. My liberalism is never be good enough to, you know, and, and groups that have that mentality when they immediately shut their doors to members. I mean, we were constantly trying to create a narrative that the Republican Party of Wisconsin was a big tent, that we wanted as many people in the tent as possible. And making the grassroots argument that that is how we're going to win. And that's how we're going to win the election. You know, that, that your candidate is only going to win if you get the broadest coalition of people together. Now there's an alternative view of politics where, Hey, if I'm going to win, all I need is 50% plus one. And so I'm I going need to get to, my base out like crazy. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to go out. I'm going to get my base. I'm going to try and dissuade my opponent's base from voting and then go from there. I always personally felt that if you approach politics as I'm going to try and convince as many people to vote for me as I can, whether they be Republican or Democrat, conservative, liberal, on whatever issue they decide to vote for me, it's it's not only going to be good for my campaign because hopefully I win, but it's going to be good for our community moving forward because my name isn't always going to be on the ballot. Someone's going to secede me in my role either as a party leader or as a governor or a senator or what have you. So I think that right now there's really two ways you can approach politics. And for the longest time, the predominant way was we're going to try and appeal to the most people. Lately, it's we're going to appeal to our base core, knowing that especially in these past two presidential elections, you know, these margins of victory are in the tens of thousands in one state, in 20,000, 30,000. So if I can't get my base out, what, what, what's, what's the point? And, and, and so it's really just, a, it's just over the past 10 years, a shift in how people have been thinking about how best to appeal to voters. And, you know, you rarely see these broad, you know, kind of um, national issue-based ads anymore. You know, it's all regional, it's all partisan, it's all, you know, I off the top of my head, I can't think of one national issue that hasn't been politi- politically divided between the parties. I mean, I guess we a all good, want... A good example being that we had a pandemic and yeah, that got politicized. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we all want, you know, we, you know, I get, we, we all want good roads and good schools and a strong defense but then you start saying, "Well, how strong of a defense? How good should our <laughs> how good should right. our roads be? And how much how do we, we spend on the schools, and yeah. how much on the defense? How, how do we judge how good our schools are doing? You know, things like that. Right. And suddenly, you're right. you're and will right our back, kids be better off right if we have there. tougher discipline in schools or more loving, comforting, nurturing exactly. things? And right. you know, so one of the things I, you said, Ben. One of the things you said, Ben, and um, Sherry, you could take first crack at this if you want to. Um, is one of the things I've noticed is that politics seems to, in its partisanship and in its extreme nature over the last 10 or 15 years, has also been taking on more qualities of a, of a religion. That more and more the parties are providing for their people priests and rites and saints and heresies and devils and scriptures. Like, these are the things you have to believe in. If you don't believe that, you're a heretic. You were talking about, like, everybody has their, like, test for whether or not you're in or out. There's membership. There's excommunication. There's who the saint is. Like, um, and if you look at what people have historically gotten out of their religion <laughs> and you look at what people are presently seemingly seeking to get out of politics, um, more and more political actions seem to be replacing for a lot of more secular younger people 
religious faith. And, and I, for one, think that is the case, and I find it very concerning. So what's the question in that? Do you think, do you agree with that? Do you not agree with that? Do you think that that's a good analysis or? I definitely, um, I definitely agree with parts of it. I do feel like at least in the last election that people were seen as followers as opposed to supporters necessarily of particular candidates. And anytime you become a follower, um, that definitely denotes something different than a supporter. Um, and I think it's I think it's a dangerous and slippery slope to get that way. And I feel like once someone, sorry, did you have a? Yeah, can you lay out that distinction for people? Because I'm not sure that's what do you. What's the difference between a supporter and a follower? Yeah, so I think a follower is being a follower of Jesus. First of all, you don't question what he did, right? You just go with it. You take it. You um, trust it. You have blind faith in it. You may not want to do it, but you do it because it was Jesus and you are a follower. And I feel like that becomes dangerous when you take that to anyone else besides him, for instance. Um, I think you start to lose sight of other things. You start to, you know, let some things slide that you normally would not have. You get blinded um, to rhetoric that you maybe don't even really believe. And I think it becomes um, borderline cult following and, I don't think that's really ever how our political system was designed to be. I think it was designed to represent the people and you support the person that most closely resembles your values, your hopes, your dreams for the country, but you don't follow them at all costs. Um, And I think that is what's happening. I think definitely in the last election, I I feel like that kind of happened a lot. I don't want to get into naming names and things like that. But I think that, that, that happened. I think people lost sight of thinking (laughs) for themselves and stopping and saying, okay, this person can't be everything to me. So I don't, does that answer your question? Yeah. Or the person who's going to protect me from the bad people. I think for like, I think there was a good bit of support for president Trump that people didn't like him, but he was going to protect them from the bad people. And so they were willing, you know, it's kind of like, there's all, you know how there's these movies, like there's this old Clint Eastwood movie where he comes to town as a priest, you know, he's like got the little collar on, he's like the preacher. And then some really bad people come to town and they're going to kill everybody. Right. And he like goes back to his safety deposit box and he gets out his six gun shooter and his whatever. And he puts his priest collar in there and he goes out and he like does the six gun slinging, you know, he protects them from the bad people. And I, I think that, I think for a lot of people, Trump was that. I think that that's true for some for the Democratic candidate too. Like that Biden was going to protect them from Trump, you know. Like, and so it's kind of like, the, I, yeah, I may not like what this person's doing. I may not otherwise support him, but gosh, I need him to protect me from the bad people. He'll fight for me, or she'll fight for me, you know. But do you think that mentality makes you a follower, or does it just make you have discernment between the choices in terms of how it's going to? make you feel or protect yeah you. i think it can be i think it can be either I, yeah because i because th- i like i have felt that way voting for certain candidates being like i don't like this person but i got two options and of these two options i think this person is better in terms of who they're going to resist and who they're going to follow and i think other people are like this guy is i mean i'm not the savior maybe but like this guy's great. You know, I, I think I wouldn't say any, I don't I think a lot of people felt that way about Biden, but I do think a lot of people felt that way about president Obama. They felt like he was a kind of hero figure, not just a, uh, an executive and like somebody they thought would be an able executive. He symbolized more than he was in a way. And I think Trump was like that too. I think he symbolized more than he was to a lot of people. And I, and I, um, I don't want to create a complete moral equivalency between the two because they're very different men. They did very different things in lots of ways. And, but at the same time, I, I think they both, that was true about both of them. And I, I, that always made me uncomfortable about both of them. Yeah. Nick, going, going back to your point about kind of this new religion, there was a, um, a great book that I would recommend to everyone called Bowling Alone, um, by Robert Putnam. And the premise of his book, it was based on off an article that he wrote where in the early 90s, I think the book came out in the early 2000s, where um, bowling leagues, I remember my parents were in a bowling league in the 80s. Bowling leagues have kind of died out. No, no one, no one's in a bowling league anymore. Yet bowling is one of the most popular American pastimes, the, you know, the, the 
I mean, maybe not now during the pandemic, but definitely when the book was written. And so he was, um, he was trying to figure out why Americans were no longer bowling in their bowling leagues, but that they were still bowling. And it became, you know, a commentary on basically the rise and fall of community and community-based organizations in America. I mean, you can look at um, Kiwanis clubs and the Elks and the Lions clubs and, you know, maybe Freemasons and all these other organizations where you'd have your dues-paying members and they had community and, you know, you can look at the church and um, as being a group like that. The, so there's this really great commentary about how Americans have kind of, they're they're getting their community fix elsewhere. And it just goes to, um, it's, if, if your community is social media and social media is giving you, um, you know, these political sound bites in 30 seconds or, or, or an issue ad in, in 60 seconds, it's tough to, you're, you're not having those meaningful conversations that you would have amongst your bowling club members and amongst your, your Elks team members or, or, or whatever other thing you would have been doing and that our parents and grandparents used to do because they didn't have social media to get that fix of community in. Um, so like I said, I would, I would recommend that book to anyone, but it, it just goes to show you that over the past, you know, several decades, I think the book came out in 2000, you know, even before social media, Americans were trending away from what it actually meant to live in community with one another. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that is such a lost, lost art, um, especially these days with the, with the tweeting. I mean, just makes me crazy, not even in full sentences and not even with any real like meat or thought behind it, because I think you have a limit on how much you can say. And it's like, that is so different than the way it used to be. I mean, there's, you never, ever communicated like that. You had to speak to your constituents. You had to do newsletters. You had to hold town hall meetings. I mean, there was just, you had to travel back and forth all the time um, to talk to your constituents and there was no other way to reach them. You know, I think the social media has really affected that. Yeah. You know, I think about like the franking privileges that members of government have, you know, nowadays people are just like, who, oh, you, you can, you can mail anything you want out at government expense for free. Who, you know, how is that a privilege? You know, whereas now it's, um, you know, they could just, they could just log on to Twitter, send out that same message, but it's different. It's different in 140 characters than it would be in a narrative that your elected officials are giving you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, both of you have also seen a changing relationship of the public with the press. You know, there's been a lot more like this is fake news and like that obviously was a, a big run of president Trump's, but also there were a number of things that were reported um, at least in the last four years that were actually false. And also there's been a whole issue of like newspaper pur- purchased memberships are down a lot. And so there just aren't as many reporters as there used to be. But meanwhile, the size of government has grown pretty dramatically in that same time period. So you have a lot more government happening and a f- lot fewer reporters to actually report on it. Like, what have you, what have you seen or what did you see or experience relative to the press? Like, I think people... I think it's, we're getting to the point where a lot of people think as badly of the press as they do of politicians. Do you think they deserve that? Do you think that they're in an impossible situation or do you think they're doing a great job? Like what's your perception having a little bit of that insider look at things? Um, yeah, that's really interesting since, as I mentioned, it was quite a long time ago when I was a press secretary. Um, and so the whole methodology of getting, um, information to the press or getting information, you know, or the press wanting information was way different, right? So there wasn't any social media, there wasn't the internet, there wasn't being able to look at all, look up all these previous stories on the internet or whatever. So it was a whole lot different. If you, if the member of Congress I worked for had something that he wanted to promote, we did a press release and mailed it out. (laughs) Um, That's how they got it. And so if there was interest a few days later, if it was a breaking story, I made phone calls um, to people. So I think there was more 
emphasis on having to actually do your homework and do your do your research because the options for research were a lot more limited, right? There wasn't all this stuff that was already out there at the click of a mouse or whatever you could get it. So it's such a tough question asking about the press. I mean, I think, again, they have their job to do. Um, but there's certainly, you know, you do see bias. You do see major networks that have kind of subtly taken a stand on which way they have a bent towards. And I can see that both ways. I can see it when I listen to Fox News. I can see it when I listen to CNN. I mean, I, I, I can see it. And so I think that there is you know, there is a distrust and a lot of that is because of the the fake news. And it makes me sad. It makes me sad that I I never back in the day thought about fake news. (laughs) I thought about, well, they just didn't cover this enough or my congressman didn't get quoted. And so now I'm in trouble or something because he didn't get quoted. It was just a whole different set of standards. But now it's like, you have to stop and say, do I believe this? And do I need to look at the sources I trust? Um, yeah, it's hard. So do you have, do you guys have sources that you trust or do you just have a bunch of sources and you hope that it comes out in the wash if you keep your eye on a couple of different things? <laughs> do you want to go first, Ben? Uh, sure. Yeah. I think, um, I have a lot, I, I would say I, I tend to have a lot of sources. I tend to kind of go from, um, the BBC to Drudge Report, Facebook and Twitter, to CNN. Um, you know, I, I, I'm in this weird stage of my life where for the 13 weeks that is my law school semester, I, um, I relish the idea of not watching the news and not really paying attention, um, kind of gives me an, an academic break, but, but what I am actively trying to stay informed, especially on local state and national issues, you know, I, I think the the only thing you can do nowadays is to just get those get those news resources from various different ones and you can kind of start you know anyone discerning enough to do that is going to see the major trends and they're going to see what they're going to see through the spin and they're going to they're going to get the news um i i actually don't envy the press their job right now um in a 24-hour news cycle if you're a reporter you, you have to write your story and get it published as quickly as possible because there are a thousand other reporters doing the same. And I think that's what's led to fa- fake news. I think that's what's led to um, agencies jumping the gun on some of their on, on publishing stories that they would have vetted longer and harder two decades ago. You know, Walter Cronkite would have taken a hard look at what he was saying and saying, oh, do you have proof for that? Now we either like now the, you know, the stations and the networks, they are, they either call New Mexico or they don't. And when they do make a decision, they get lambashed on one side or the other, especially if it's a political decision. So nowadays, I think that, you know, like I said, this 24 hour news cycle that we've entered where the end all be all is it's not about accurate news. It's about quick news. And, and that's really not good for a representative democracy where an informed populace is not only ideal, it's required. Yeah, I, I agree with a lot of that, too. I think that people have just lost their appetite for in-depth reporting. I mean, nobody really wants to spend time reading a lengthy newspaper and story about something they want to get it quickly i um my husband is a huge newspaper fan like his life without the new york times or the wall street journal just is not a life that he can see living and you know so newspapers all over the place and he's got his nose stuck in it for hours i'm like oh my god how do you do that juxtapose that against our son who's 23 and his news source is I'm going to say hundred percent on his phone and whatever pops up on his phone. And I've gotten on his case about, do you actually look and see what the source is? I mean, or do you just look at that headline, get your paragraph and then tell everybody that's what's going on. And I've had to like ask him to really spend time, like looking at sources he can trust. Uh, so it's, yeah. it's it, it can be really that. ironic. Cause I've had so many younger people who get their news that way. They're like, 
uh, they're like, Hey, you need to have awareness. And I'm like, oh, yeah. do you know what awareness is? Awareness isn't repeating what comes into your phone. Awareness is like understanding, like, like for, I'm like, I'm to the point in my life now where I know a lot of reporters names and I know what they've been right on and wrong on in the past. And I know what they're good at reporting on and what they're bad at reporting on. So like, there's only a few people I'll listen to when they report on religion, for example, or evangelicalism or something like that, or, or national debt or whatever, and, or foreign, foreign affairs and so on. And like, I think sometimes people just think if it's, if it comes, it's, a, if it comes out in certain like feeds, it's right. And in fact, in fact, I've been in Madison for 10 years, probably just six to eight years ago, CNN was thought of as a fairly centrist truth oriented down the line um, thing. And, and everybody would have said MSNBC is far on the left and, and Fox is, is significantly to the right. But they would have been like, you know, see, and, and I, I mean, I already saw that kind of crumbling because, you know, rhetoric is my profession. And so, like, I can tell slight adjustments and how people are trying to persuade me based on like little word choices. So I already was like, that's bull. But like very few people, most people would just say CNN versus Fox now because to them, CNN is clearly on the left and it just is what it is, you know? No, when you have, when you have like Democrat family machine people as hosts and like, I mean, it, after a while, it's just very transparent, you know? Yeah. And even for people like Sherry's husband who they, they want a newspaper, they want that in-depth reporting. You know, if you were to compare a, a, the New York times 30 years ago, it's going to be that thick. New York times now is like that thick. So, you know, even those news outlets that are, are continuing the traditional way in which news is disseminated, they're drastically, you know, and, and, I, and I don't know enough about it to know if it's budget cuts or if it's just the digital age that we, we live in now. Um, but what's, what's scary for me, and um, I'm, I'm currently researching, I'm currently writing a paper for one of my classes, and it involves me um, just researching some sites. And most of the best newspaper websites out there, their articles are behind a paywall after your fifth, tenth, or twelfth article that month. And so now we're in a situation where even if you are a discerning uh, citizen who wants really good news, if you can't afford to pay for it after that tenth article, you're, you no longer have that resource. And it may, it may be the resource that you trust the most. Do you, okay, you say can't afford. Do you feel that way or do you feel like um, Americans are of the taste now that they don't wish to pay for news? That like, that's not, that's not something they want to spend their money on. Probably both. I mean, because I, because I tend I to think, think it's the latter. Like I have money. I could pay for a newspaper subscription if I wanted to. Yeah. I just don't want to. I, I guess my argument is that if you are someone that wants to be able to access 10 different new sites, you're not going to pay for all of them. You're going to pick your, you know, you're going to pick the, the Madison daily times or the Virginia pilot or the New York times. And, and you'll, and you'll, and you'll be kind of a, a loyal customer there. But if you're someone that's worried about fake news, what if your trusted newspaper is the one publishing fake news? So I guess in, in my perfect world, you would have the economy of choice where you could, you know, like I said, you could go to BBC and CNN. You could go to Fox News and MSNBC. Um, I mean, some of the some of the best reporting that I've seen on political issues are Fox Business and, and, and what is it, CNBC, the, um, MSNBC's business counterpart, you know, or the BBC, you know, where, where you kind of can just look at. Um, politics through a different lens, through a business lens or a, a not necessarily American lens. And then you can kind of put those common denominators together. And, you know, I'm, I, I wouldn't encourage anyone to make up their own minds about news because there are some truths in news, you know, like we either landed on the moon or we didn't. However, I think that when you're testing the reliability of your news sources, you can look at, like I said, these lowest common denominators and, and figure out pretty quickly, you know, who you should, who you should at least um, take things with a grain of salt, or you can kind of take it to the bank. Mm -hmm. So let's wrap up a little bit um, on this. What in your life has changed in your view of governance, politics, and policy 
and maybe programs as your faith has deepened. Like I'm, I'm, I'm obviously presuming that your faith has grown over the course of your life. As that's happened, how has your faith like inaugurated changes in how you think about politics, policy, programs, governance, and so on? I think that for me, there's an increased question of why we're doing what we're doing. Um, as a society, as a government, as a community, um, and I kind of, when I say we, I, I intrinsically link them all together. You know, you can't, you can't have government without society. You know, you can't have government without politics. I mean, you know, this, this total economy approach to what we're talking about, you know, I think that we should constantly be asking ourselves, you know, Cubono, who benefits? Is it the the poorest of our community? Is it the weakest? Is it the downtrodden? Is it the people that Christ told us to be ambassadors to? Or is it those of us that have everything we need already? And I think that the two major parties are definitely going to um, debate and disagree over how to get there. I've been fortunate enough in my career to work for people um, that I know we're asking those kinds of questions. You know, this, this new government policy that we're about to enact, who's it going to benefit? How is it going to make life easier for my constituents? Um, and I think that as long as you have members of government asking those questions, we may disagree on the answers and we may disagree on the process of those questions. But I think that as long as we are constantly challenging ourselves in how to make society better for everyone, I think that's where we come across that that's where we come out ahead. And you know, that's how you continue moving America forward. Um and and, and it's how you in in ensure that those programs are successful. So I think for me it it, it changes a way of you know, early on, it was, I'm going to work for the Republican Party, I'm going to work for this candidate. And it all comes down to D-Day or E-Day, and we either win or we lose, and I hope we win. Now, I think that it's matured into, okay, I still want my candidate to win. But I especially want them to win if I know that they have a plan, a plan that is going to work for everyone in this community, everyone in our community. Um, you know, and I've also been very fortunate to work for strong believers who were very vocal about the fact that they were running for office because they felt that it's what God had called them to do, that they were being an active participant in their community because they felt that, that their skills and, and their minds and, and everything that they had, that, that they were called to do it. Um, and so as, as someone working for those people, that, that made it easier too. You know, it was easy working for Governor Walker, for example, knowing how strong his faith was. Um, and it was easy working for him knowing that he felt called to do what he did, what, you know, he felt called to that profession by God. Um, and, and so that, you know, overall, that for me was most important. Yeah, but there's a lot. <laughs> there's a lot to be said about about what you just um, asked, Nick, and, and Ben had some really good comments. Um, I haven't lost faith in government. Um, I have not. I think we've hit a rough patch, and I hope that it's a patch that we, I know, we'll get beyond. Um, I think it's just really important. I mean, one thing that I've always felt positive about is that things really get done um, by individuals, um, and so. We may feel like government is at a you know bottleneck or they're kind of grinding against each other, but that doesn't relieve any of us from our individual responsibilities. And it doesn't relieve us from being able to do whatever we can within our realm to make society a better place. Um, so I, I'm not, I'm not giving up like on, on humanity and, and, and good things um, still happening ahead. I just caution that, yeah, you know, politics is just one thing, right? I mean, it's just a, you know, it's, it's not, it's not everything. It's not how everything is. It, certainly policies come from it that dictate how we live, 
but we still have our own free will as well. And so I just feel like, again, I've got to keep making my contribution. Everyone needs to make their contribution, not get so disillusioned by it and think that they don't matter. Um, and that it's all happening somewhere else. Um, I think it's more than ever, we need to like hunker down on our own communities. Um, we need to support people and things and programs that we still believe in that align us with our faith. Um, I, I, I'm just, I'm hoping this partisanship can kind of dissolve some. I, I really am because I just, it's not, it's certainly not biblical. Um, and it's certainly not the way that our country has run before. Um, one thing that's always bothered me is I, I don't think anyone, one political party can claim to be like the moral majority, um, or, or take the moral high ground. That's always bothered me, um, that, you know, one party claims to be, you know, on the right side of the morals, uh, discussion. And I don't think that's true. I mean, I think that's an individual, decision too. I think it makes up a lot more than that. So I'm mm -hmm. not sure if that really answered what you were originally yeah. um, asking Nick, but yeah, let me, let me end with this one, Sherry. Um, as, as we uh, look at this is sort of the wrap up question, what, what advice would you give for Christians? You know, Christians who they've never worked in politics, they may not really want to pay attention and read like a bunch of different news sources that they've paid for. Like, you know, you're one of the things that's, that is difficult about a re representative um, Republic, like this a representative democracy is that, an informed public is necessary, yet government is increasingly complicated, and the decisions of who should exert governance is increasingly complicated, and people don't want to spend more and more and more time figuring out who they should be voting for. Like, what what should the average Christian? Like, what advice would you give for the average Christian just about like being a member of a republic like this, but who is a believer? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I guess I would probably remind them that on on Judgment Day that God's not necessarily going to ask who you voted for, um, and I would encourage them to continue to read Matthew twenty five thirty five, which that section is kind of how I guide my life um, in terms of serving others. Um, I would just say to Christians, this is this is our opportunity. I mean, this is, this is our time really right now more than ever, um, to show, um, what it means to love others and to care about others and to, to show common decency to others, even if we disagree with them. So I would say this is a pivotal point right now as a Christian to not shrink back, not, you know, not be so disillusioned that you feel like the world, you know, you don't have a place in the world. Um, I would say stay strong with your beliefs and, and, and rule by, you know, people are going to look at your actions right now. They're going to look at the fact that you're going to continue to do the work that God intended for you to do, that you're going to continue to serve others. You're going to continue to feed the hungry and, um, you know, clothe the naked and visit people in prison. I would just say, keep doing those commands, um, and not be disillusioned by what's happening, um, in the political process. Yeah, I agree. I think um, my my advice to someone who's a believer and, and either wanting to get engaged or somehow feels, um, I guess my argument for non-engagement would be, why, why let someone else choose the policies that are going to govern your life, whether it's a local school board ordinance or um, a federal tax question? Why not? get in the game and and at least have those conversations with the people around you. Um, however, that being said, I spent, you know, the past 10 years working in politics and it was never, it, it was never the most important thing in my life. I mean, it was, you know, there were times where I was working 90 hours a week on a campaign and even then, it wasn't the most important thing in my life. You know, my family, my friends, the relationships that I had, those were the most important things. And even relationships with people that, dis you know, my friendship with people across the aisle and people that disagree with me politically, you know, those friendships and relationships will never be less important than some random political belief that I have. And so really one of the saddest things that I see right now is people putting their political activism and their political identity on a pedestal and um, 
almost glorifying that more than they glorify the relationships and the people around them. So I encourage everyone, you know, it doesn't matter where you fall on the political spectrum, you know, love your neighbor and, and be a good parent and, and be a good adult for the kids in your neighborhood and be active. You know, like I said, everyone wants good roads and good schools and a strong national defense and, you know, start having the small conversations and you'll be shocked at how quickly they become bigger ones. Thank you guys. My guests today have been Sherry Farha and Benjamin Heath, um, both either members or former members at High Point. And uh, I appreciate your insight and your experiences, guys. I hope um, people will get a lot out of this episode. Thanks so much. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. You can find more episodes online at highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on most podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Overcast. If you are listening on a podcast app, hit subscribe to get notified of future episodes. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.